Hello, everybody, and welcome to Julian Jones Was Live in the 90s. We have to put a bit of a disclaimer on episode two as we are speaking about domestic violence and sexual assault. So if there's children in your shop, probably not a great time for them to listen. In saying that, our second guest for Julian Jones Was Life in the 90s is author of 18 books, well, published 18, written probably more, is guest Vicky Petratus. Welcome, Vicky. I am so thrilled to be here, Jules. It just seems like yesterday, doesn't it, that it was mm-hmm. the 90s? And like... 25 years, 30 years ago or whatever it was. Oh, my goodness me. But here we are, Vic. I'm scared that it might, I'm, I'm scared that it might be nearly 30. It's I don't know. 30. Yeah. Is that, I, I think, think it's so. 27 to be exact. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. we're still here. Okay. We are, and that's that's the main thing. The Frankston murders, Vicky. What an incredible ride you've had. I remember in the 90s, the Frankston murders were so horrifying that every person along Victoria's Peninsula, I mean, let's face it, probably from Rye all the way up to Elwood, um, you know, were in fear of their lives and being extra careful. And then your book comes out. Yeah, and I think that's when I first came on your show was when I was either writing that book or had just written the book. And I think it was one of the first times, not the first, but one of the first times that true crime had sort of been featured. You know, I read a lot of true crime back then and you couldn't buy it. You couldn't buy local stuff. So there was like Andrew Rule's Cuckoo, which was amazing. Tom Noble had written Untold Violence. But there was really nothing that was written in Melbourne back Mm. then. And so I'd written The Phillip Island Murder and I'd written my second book, Victims, Crimes and Investigators. And while I was doing that book, I was doing ride-alongs with Frankston and the serial killer began killing women. And I was actually on a shift for the last murder. I was at the murder scene, parked well back, nowhere near the actual site because, of course, no one can go near that. But, you know, in, in the back of a police car, looking up at the helicopter shining its night sundown and thinking, oh, my God... I have to write this book. This, I'm, I'm so much in. I lived in the area, and I'm just so invested in in this guy being caught. And so, I, I decided in the back of a police car at the scene of the third murder to write that book. And I think, you know, it was it was big back then because every publisher that I sent it to just went, "No, nah, we don't do that kind of thing." And they all sort of turned highbrow and. You know, no one wants to read that. And I'm thinking, why wouldn't people want to read that? It's on the front page of the newspapers every single yeah. day. And people are so invested in... And it's not a morbid curiosity. It's like a safety. It's like how we read the papers when we were in lockdown. Everybody's reading them, not out of morbid curiosity, but, oh, my God, am I going to be safe? Am I going to be okay? What's my future? You know, what does it look like for me? And I think that's why people were so intrigued in this case. And so, yeah, I ended up self-publishing it and took a really big risk, borrowed a lot of money to do it. And um, it ended up being a bestseller within a couple, within a, maybe a month from memory. I can't believe it. You got a loan out. I think you just bought a house in, was it Seaford? Yeah, Seaford. You know, around the corner from where all this was happening. And I paid $64,000 for my house and I took a $20,000 loan to get this book out. I believed in it so much. 
and I I also believe that people would want to read it, and they did, and and they we went into reprint really quickly, and I think we had to sell two thousand three hundred books to pay back yeah. my loan, and we sold five thousand in the first three Ooh. weeks. I do remember you actually had written that book when you came on Julian's own life because you gave me a copy of the book then. Thank you. And I did read it. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Like, yeah, you doubled the sales pretty much and then some and then some and it continued from there. And and I was was actually concerned for you because I do recall you living in Seaford at the time and um, I was a bit worried for you and here you were investigating it in the back of police cars, my goodness. And that third murder was, I think I had it it here. Yeah, Natalie Russell. So that was the 30th of July and uh, I was doing a shift that night and it was, you know, I got to the police station and at that stage they said, you know, as we're walking in the back door, me and the sergeant that I was going on the ride along with, who was my next door neighbour, and he, you know, they, they said another one's gone missing and there was just this sense of absolute stunned disbelief yeah. that this could happen under the noses mm. of hundreds of extra police in Frankston. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, by the time we got inside, someone had come down from upstairs and just said they've found her and she's dead. And it was just, it was like the whole place had just deflated. It was, it, it, yeah, I'd never forget that I mean, night. didn't somebody see the car? as well around the time of the murder. So it really, it, it seemed to me like they just missed Natalie by minutes almost, yeah? Yeah, so he was, uh, Daniel was sitting in his car on Sky mm-hmm. Road waiting for a victim to come toward the yep. bike track and when he saw a girl coming, mm-hmm. he ran down the bike track, he dived through one of the holes that he'd cut earlier so the purpose of that was so that she would walk past. So he, he's kind of looking out, looking for someone that he could just separate from the herd and classic hunting manoeuvre. And as soon as she walked past, he stepped out from the hole in the fence and then quickly gained on her in time to push her through a hole that he'd cut further on. So this was the first murder that he had planned ahead of time and he had lay in wait. And so it was getting very dire. Yeah. But when he was crouched down in his car in Sky Road, a postal worker had gone past. And this is this shows you how frightened Frankston people were at the time. And she just went, that guy looks really sus. And went into a house, knocked on the door and said, I need to use your phone and call the police. There's a guy that just looks really sus. But by the time she came out, the man in the car had gone, but the car was still there. And when the police got there to check the car, the car was empty and Denya in his statement talks about killing Natalie, walking back down the bike track, coming out the end and looking over and there's cops checking his car. And he just put his bloodied hands in his pockets and just walked home, came back for the car uh, later. Like, That's how they caught him. That's um, how they caught him. Moment. I mean, I'm glad, glad they yeah. caught him. And Elizabeth Stevens and Debbie Freem were the other two victims from Paul Daniel, yeah. unfortunately. That was in 19... When was that? 
So 1993, so Elizabeth was the 11th of June and then Debbie was the 8th of July. And so you had within this seven-week period four, uh, three girls go missing and a fourth was um, there was an attempted murder um, on the night that Debbie was taken earlier. Someone had got off the train at Seaford, Rosa Toth, and she had sort of been grabbed by a guy just again waiting for her to walk past it's dark he grabs her she fights uh, for her life literally and runs out onto the road and stops flags down a car who picked her up and Danya just hopped on the train and continued on to Cannanook got off there walked down the street closest to the station McCulloch Avenue and Debbie was stopping there to buy milk oh your worst night my worst nightmare everyone's worst nightmare I mean I, I really don't know what, how somebody like that operates. And, I, you know, you have more of an idea. What's the drive? Power? Oh, yeah, definitely power. And what I think he did is he really uh, thrived on the fear that he could mm. cause. And so we get this, um, I don't know, there's so many instances where doing the podcast because I've just finished an 11-episode podcast with Case File um, just to coincide with his parole hearing because it's all about timing, isn't it? And so I've just interviewed so many people that had these almost micro-encounters with Denya where it might last a minute but they've never forgotten and it's all about making them uncomfortable, making them fearful but, you know, he was such a coward that he just targeted babies and young children by killing the pets at the local kindergarten and leaving them on the doorstep for the kids to find. Like, who does oh, that? Yeah. He rammed a, he rammed several women when he worked as a trolley boy at Safeway and rammed several women, one of whom had a baby in her trolley and knocked the woman and the baby over and both had to be taken to the, the hospital for observation. It's like, who targets babies? You know, what a big hero that he's the big tough monster and he's targeting babies. Yeah. And that's, I think, revisiting this case in the podcast, it's really disturbing when you get this broader picture because through social media you can put a call out and say, if you've had an encounter with Denya and you feel like you'd like to add to the podcast, I want this to be a community project. Oh, yeah. And I had people contacting me from all over the place and every story added to this really, really distressing narrative. It's frightening to me, for me, honey, and I hats off to you for challenging it. I Women, know. Uh, hats off to you for looking these men in the eye. I mean, it's phenomenal. You have to and you have to be really fearless about this and you have to stand up and say this story is so important to be yeah. told and to be told now in a podcast form and we know that podcasts, like if my book is a bestseller, it might sell 10,000 or 20,000 or 50,000 but a podcast I get millions of, of downloads and that's, that's the, this, this will go around the world. And so I want voices around the world crying out, saying, please don't yeah. let him out. He's dangerous. Yeah, great. Good on, good on all of you, your producers and anybody um, 
um, working with you on that. And what a great job you did um, with the, um, the disappearance of Beth Bernard and, well, actually, sorry, the, the murder of Beth Bernard and the disappearance of Vivian Cameron, the Phillip Island murder. Yeah. Your two million hits. Yeah. You got two million hits. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't checked figures for the last year, so it might be more than that now, but I think you get to a certain... I don't know, if, if you, you would understand this. For a, a writer, the only way that the numbers um, mean anything is to get your yeah. message out. And so when, when it hit a million, I was really chuffed and I had this really strong sense of no one can take this away from yeah. me now. You know, it, this is something that it's like when you get a master's degree or something, you go, I've got that forever and no one can take it away. And I felt the same with a million downloads and really didn't ask how many downloads I was getting. Um, and then I think it hit two million and and I think Sarah, the searching for Sarah McDermott, hit a million and I haven't asked for about a year. So, But I, I think because it's not, it's not important, um, all you want to do is you want to get the story yeah. out. And and it, it you know book sales or podcast downloads it, you know if you hear if you hear a number my uh, novel the unbelief just hit the bestseller uh, you know it, it, it hit ten thousand before Christmas and it's like yay and that but you don't <laughs> I don't know and congratulations on that because you won an award it's Thank your first you. crime fiction novel yeah yeah so I took on a PhD uh, in about twenty seventeen in creative writing. And I wanted to do something completely different. So for me, that's yeah. fiction. So after, you know, 25 years or whatever of true crime, I thought I'm going to fictionalise. I'm going to put all of the things that really get up my yeah. goat and I'm going to put them into a novel. And so I spent four years. And one of the lecturers, Kelly Gardner, said to me at La Trobe, she said, you know, take your time. This is a learning experience and don't rush it because writers rush, you know, we'll do a book a year. And and I just thought I really took that advice on board and thought I'm just going to take my time and I just put my heart and soul into this mm. novel. And then Ellen Nungwen announced that they were doing their first ever crime fiction prize. Wow. And so I saw the deadline for that was like February and I thought I'm going to enter that and I'm going to win because I had just put this novel was as perfect as I could get it and I'm a good writer, you know, so I just thought I've got a really, really good chance but I was just really certain that I was going to win it. I don't want to sound arrogant about that but to me the novel was so important and another really interesting thing is that I didn't really show it to anyone. I don't really show my work, to, not not because I'm precious about it. I just don't think people would be that interested yeah. to, do you want to read a chapter? Um, I never assumed that they would be interested. So I hadn't really shown it to anyone. But when I gave it to my PhD supervisors, both of them had exactly the same reaction. It was over the summer and I had sent it through but it hadn't go, gone through the uni system and I had my what's called a confirmation meeting to just make sure that you're on track and I came into the office uh, this was just before COVID hit 
And one of them, my supervisor, Claire, she, she just looked at me and she goes, when I got this last week, I thought, oh, how am I going to read this in a week? Mm. And she goes, I could not put it mm. down. I could not put it down. And I'm like, I'm almost hyperventilating going, that's a really good sign. Mm. And then the other, the chair of the confirmation hearing was, or meeting was um, zooming in from Germany. And so she comes on. And said exactly the same thing. She goes, I got it last week. I, I, you know, and then I could not put it down. So I'm, I'm just sitting there just with this feeling that whatever it is that I've done, I think it's good. And so I, it was more based on how they responded to it than my own feelings of greatness. But I was really confident. And even when Ellen and Ungwen, uh, Jane Pelfreman rang me to say, Congratulations, you won it. Um, I, I, I went, I knew it. <laughs> That's amazing. She probably thought, what a, pre- what a pompous <laughs> What a pretentious, person. pompous author she is on her 18th <laughs> book. But, you know, you do, you definitely do get a gut feeling with the – I do art all the time. I mean, it's art yeah. as well, yeah. It's writing is art. Yeah. And you do get that. You, you yeah. just know when you hit the right button. You just really feel it. I just knew it. I absolutely knew it. And I had handed it in and they said the competition, they said, you know, we'll let you know by the end of September. And I'd marked it on my calendar. Ellen and Unwin will let me know that I've won the award. Like, (laughs) I sound really, really pretentious now, don't I? Okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop talking about that. That's so cute. Well, I I know you personally, so I know you're not that pretentious. So I figured it was a gut feeling, you know, when... When I heard yeah. it on a podcast, I listened to like 20 of your podcasts this week and I read 65% of The Unbelieved and I couldn't put it down in between listening to your podcast. That, that's amazing. You'll, you'll be sick of me now yeah. after this. Who could get sick of your writing, honey? I mean, you're in the moment. I feel every part of it, you know. Um, I've, I've had experiences like what you're writing about. So for me, it triggers me. But... You know, with this book in particular, I found the detective now. Antigone Pollard. Antigone, oh, yeah. right. Antigone Pollard. Right. And Antigone Beautiful. Pollard made me feel so confident reading that book because she had all the right things to say and do and she was responding quite immediate. Yeah, she was very immediate in her responses to men, to men yeah. speaking to her. Yeah vile language and, you know, and treating her like a piece of meat or trying to. And she yeah. um, she certainly sorted them out. And they there's one scene that ends with um, she confronts this guy in a supermarket and um, and she walks away and, yeah, and she says, you know, he goes, your boss will know about this and she's like, oh, yes, you know, trying to get the, the last word in. She goes, oh, yes, he will. And she goes, I never let them get the final word it. in. <laughs> so I think she does what we all want to say. You know when you have that encounter with someone horrible and then you get home and you go, oh, my God, I wish I had have totally. said. You know, I have, she says all those she things. She says so much. She's the, the voice for so many victims. And I've got, like, highlighted yeah. paragraphs everywhere. I'm like, we're not going to have enough time to talk about all of Vicky's success with all my highlights everywhere. But there was there were so <laughs> many terrific quotes from her. Um, you know, and I, I remember she was giving a speech and she was saying, these women are incredibly vulnerable. Don't make it worth blaming them for what their partners do. We, we do 
that yeah. in Australia quite quite a lot, I think. We do. Funny, funny you should say that because I went to a, a book club meeting last yeah. night with lovely women yeah. and sometimes I get invited to book clubs and, you know, if they're going to feed me, I'll rock up. And and that was the response of two of the yeah. women. The automatic response was, you know, they were talking about the mm. book and uh, one of the women said, I want to play devil's advocate but, you know, I just can't help but thinking these women going out getting drunk, um, you know, they really bring it on themselves. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, and I jumped straight. And then there was another woman going, yes, and what about all those girls that throw themselves at band members, all the groupies? Yeah. So what a funny reaction when we're talking about women being vulnerable to sexual yeah. assault. What a funny reaction to pick one small group of women who if you're liberated and if you're old enough and if you're consenting and you want to throw yourself at someone famous, good on you. You know, that's, uh, you know, what that, that's your thing, go yeah. for it. Um, but it's so funny and I just said to her, well, while you're playing devil's advocate, let me play devil's advocate back. Yeah. Um, when men go out and drink too much and, you know, watching the footy or whatever at Mm. the pub, you would never ever say, oh, well, they would deserve it if they were targeted in an alleyway on the way home by a a male rapist. You know, like, I don't want to trigger anybody, but I guess there should be a trigger warning right through this because the topics that I write about are are really distressing. But I think we need to highlight them because if we don't talk about it and then again at this book club one of the women said oh and it's not all men and I said yeah but if we if we always you know respond to we have a problem with male violence and male sexual assault and male entitlement we just do do. and and that plays out in the figures of um you know family homicide uh, it plays out, uh, you know, God, I think we've had three or four already this year and we're not even out of January. It plays out in, I think, every eight minutes there's a call for f- domestic um, violence, and you know, a call to an ambulance or a service. And so not only does it cost us billions, but we, we always talk about the problem, but we never address, well, somebody's out there yeah. doing it. And... Um, People like Jane Gilmore in her Fixed It, she, I just saw on a social media post before, there's a post about, um, you know, woman in car crash after abduction and she says, but who, she, was she abducted by the car? Why do we remove men from the yeah, headlines? Why do we take the perpetrator mm-hmm. out? And so I, I just think we have to confront this and I think that's what the book does. It says we've got a problem uh, with men, and we've also got a problem with men standing up for and speaking out against yeah. uh, this whole yeah. problem. Oh yeah, we definitely do. We, uh, I think more and more men are learning about it, and you know, calling it out if you recognise it. That is, and you know, because some offenders work quite well, um, flying under the radar. But you know, you, which really does bring me to the, my next question is the importance of writing about true crime. Yeah, look, I think uh, both crime fiction and non-fiction are really good vehicles to highlight um, to highlight issues and this is, I hope, where a lot of, not all crime, it doesn't, you can have your whodunit and you can have your cosies, but I think a lot of crime fiction now is mirroring 
true crime so that you get a book like Jess Hill's See What You Made Me Do, which really looked, it was a deep dive into family violence and I think it won maybe the Premier's Little Award or it, it really got a lot of accolades as it should, very well deserved. And you get Bree Lee's Eggshell Skull and you get these books, um, Louise Milligan's Witness. And then what seems to happen is when they put... Writers like Louise Milligan's amazing because when she puts an issue or Jess Hill puts an issue into the, into the um, you know, the reading audience, then kind of fiction seems to go, all right, I'm going to cover that issue because now family violence is something that we don't mm. hide. Now we're talking yeah. about it and, and, and it, then it starts to get mirrored into fiction. So it's a really interesting kind of they're feeding off each other to say, oh, this is this is now uh, something that we can talk mm. about. Because if you think back to it, Me Too was, what, 20, maybe 16, 2017, yeah. 2018? Me Too is quite yeah. new. Astonishingly. And astonishingly. Yeah. And it wasn't, we didn't really talk about it. We didn't really, oh, yeah, Me Too, I've had that happen to me. It was this cone of yeah. silence. And when I wrote my book Rock Spider in 1999, the one thing that as a very young writer coming into that book, I realised by the end of it was that all sexual assault perpetrators prey on and rely on silence. Yeah, don't they? That was my conclusion when I did a deep dive and I thought this shaming of the victim, whether it's a child, whether it's an adult, mm-hmm. um, the blaming of the victim, it's your fault, the gaslighting, mm-hmm. all of the things that perpetrators do and do really effectively shames the victims or scares yeah. the victims into silence. Yeah. But the thing that I've noticed is that when I interview people that speak up about mm-hmm. it, it feels like the secret of what happened is this toxic mass inside yeah. of them, hurting yeah. them. And the minute that they say it happened, there's a visible difference in their countenance that they seem lighter and they seem, oh, I said it, and the world didn't yeah. stop. You were sympathetic toward me. You didn't blame me. You didn't victim blame um, and just when I'm the audience as, as the writer for people getting these things off their chest, it is a magical thing that I would never trade. It's pretty incredible. Um, I mean, I, I came across some caseworkers. Um, I, I tried to talk about it when I was a lot younger um, and, and during yeah. during the time that it was happening and I constantly got rejected from counsellors or health services. Um, I was au okay with the way you go about it because I was just trained a lifeline counsellor. Yet it still happened to me, you know, and I, I was aware that it still happened to me because love gets in the way sometimes, yeah? Or, or, or you yeah. can be caught with your guard down. You might have headphones on or beat, or you might have yeah. been drinking. What have you? You might have yeah. loved the sound of the way somebody was talking to you. That might be enough. Yeah. That might be what you're after. So you're attracted to that and they can get you at any moment. Yeah. And and you said in the yeah. book, you know, the um, and Antigone Pollard, Detective Antigone Pollard said, hold on to your drinks. Don't lose sight of your yeah. drink ever. If you do, yeah. buy a new yeah. one. If you lose yeah. sight of it, just grab a new one, tip it out and go and get a new one. 
what amazes what amazes yeah. me though, Vicky, is that these off moments can often take what three to seven minutes of hell, and then then you're left, or the families are left, or the friends are left with, you know, the remnants of a nuclear bomb in, inside one family. A, a life lifetime of damage. A lifetime of damage. And this is what you. You, I, I interviewed a detective once and he had come from just, you know, local CIBs and he was seconded into the rape squad when he had a case in his little, you know, uh, suburban CIB of um, multiple offences by a member, like a priest. Yeah. And so when he reported that to the rape squad because it was going to be a serial case, they said to him, look, you've already started to talk to some victims. We want you to come and work with us so that you can run this. And I remember this guy, I was very young when I interviewed him. I was in my early 30s, so he may have been 50 or he might have just looked 50 because when you're 30, everybody looks (laughs) 50. But anyway, um, and I, I will never forget when he said to me, he said, I have dealt with a lot of victims in my long career as a detective and I've never seen damage like these victims of clergy abuse. Good to hear. And so, yeah, it just, this long-term damage of, you know, men that that couldn't function, uh, you know, that, that every time they were trying to have normal, healthy relationships, you, you would automatically remember when you were raped by a priest as a child and questioning their sexuality and questioning their, um, you know, did I, what did I do wrong? And, and they, they became, uh, you know, men that were clinging on to trying their best to deal with this unimaginable thing that happened right when they were forming. And I really am convinced that when this happens, when you're forming who you are, it becomes part of who you are. Oh, sure. And then you have to navigate. It makes you, it forms part of you, that history of violence and the lack of trust and who can you trust and um, how did I misplace the trust and can I trust myself to protect myself because I didn't see it coming yeah. or all of these really complex things go into the forming of a yeah. child. And, you know. Well, you actually mentioned that in the unbelieved you say at one point girl was saying she didn't trust herself to talk. I mean yeah. and, and, and it leaves you as an empty shell. Um and yeah. you know like for example if I spoke about it tomorrow to somebody that the and, and usually it's only because somebody brought it up or or, or it's yeah. a close person in my life and I might be struggling with something so I'll say, listen, this came up for me. And some people's response are it happened such a long time ago, mate. You need to get over it. So, so my yeah. my my fact to those people that do say that is, I have yeah. complex post traumatic stress disorder, so that's CPTSD, and that's for yeah. life. It doesn't go away. And the reason that is is because it's compounded of many different events that happened over a long period of time. So yeah. as much as you can say that happened a long time ago, I actually have a disability, which is CPTSD, and it is classified as a disability, and it's permanent. So, you know... And I think people people don't understand about this formative thing so that 
we grow up as if you live a lovely, happy, healthy childhood and your parents are lovely and you skip through rose gardens, then, you know, you can grow up to be maybe, I don't know, a, a happy, healthy, functioning adult. But when you have trauma and you have adults preying on you and objectifying you and treating you like they would treat a rag doll yeah. and and telling you that you're worthless and, and interfering with the way that you form as an adult, that it's not a, a matter of, oh, just forget about it, it was ages ago. It's like, but this is part of who I yeah. am and it's part of what I have to live with and deal with every day. And so we all do that. I mean, everybody understands that if they've had a loss or a tragedy or they get jumpy around, you know, a screeching of brakes because they once saw a car accident. Everybody understands mm. that on that mm. level. But I don't uh, – I don't know. I think people don't think a lot about this, do they? Well, no. I, I think people well, I mean, don't want to think a lot no, about well, this. I had one police officer just say to me, just be happy. And I said to her, would you actually say that to a police officer that have PTSD? Just be happy, mate. I know you got you saw someone get shot, but just be happy. I mean, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's the right thing to say to survivors, just be happy. Maybe. Um, I think it's not. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I think it's definitely maybe, not. Uh, maybe something a little bit warmer, like you, you need to focus on the now and try and be happy in the now where you can. It's probably a better way to phrase it because it, otherwise it leaves you quite isolated if you say, just be happy. It happened so long ago, you know, and, and when people say that, it's quite an aggressive um, yeah. response from them. And I, if... What? When you think about that response, yeah. like other crimes, okay, so just say you're a bank mm. manager and somebody comes into your bank and points a gun at people and fires a shot at the security cameras and takes hundreds of thousands of dollars and runs out and you ring the police and the police come in and they say to you, we're going to try and catch the people who did this. Don't worry. I know it's traumatic but, you know, we're going to try and make this right and we're going to hunt yeah. them down. No one walks into the bank post-robbery and says, oh, you know what, was minutes ago. Just be happy. <laughs> yeah. Or if someone breaks into your house or steals your car, ah, oh, just be happy. Totally. Because what we really want, if we make a report to mm. police, we really want the cav cavalry, don't we? We want them to go, uh, have no fear, I will restore justice, I will hunt down this person that did this to you and we will prosecute them and put them in jail where they belong and can't do this to anyone yeah. else. That's what we want them to say. And when they say, well, we can't do anything, it's the same as if it, you feel as as weird and and hopeless as if they came to your home break-in and said, ah, oh, you know, they've broken into your home, but look, they stole all your precious things and, and you know, weed on your floor, but just be happy yeah. and we're not going to do anything. Yeah. Sex, sexual assault is one of those crimes that the different rules apply. Yeah, and also what about the, the perpetrators that are in jail and coming out of jail? I mean, for those victims' families, they'd be living in terror when if if, if yeah. the perpetrator got out of jail. That brings it into the moment, that's well, for sure. You can't yeah. tell them to, to leave it in the past, you know? Well, that's what we're all facing with Correct. Denya. This is why my next podcast series is on Paul Denya. I'll be listening. Because, um, yeah, 20, 
nine years and three months into his 30-year minimum, he applied for parole and set the family spinning. It was it was the most awful. I mean, they knew that he would, but they never thought that he would before the 30 years was you up. You wouldn't think. And it just came out of the blue. Yeah, you wouldn't think. Um, there's three victims here, but I would have thought they were three lifelong sentences, not one. Well, yeah, that's what he got originally and then he appealed and got a 30-year minimum. And I interviewed Neil Mitchell for that and as Neil Mitchell said, he said all of these families now are living the very life that we feared for them back when he got that 30-year minimum, that, that they would be, it would hit the press and that he can apply and hit the front page of newspapers, although I was really happy to see that it, he just, I think it was page 14, he did not hit the front page um, because I did hear that he subscribes to the Herald Sun, so I did hear that he's very keen to read about himself and I was really happy that his parole bit didn't make the front page. Yeah. but. Uh, we need to sing this to the world and say don't ever forget just how dangerous this offender is. It's quite interesting because you and I had a very brief chat about that the other day and I remember after hanging up from you, I heard the new law that had come out if you killed a police officer. The law now is you have a life sentence. Yeah. What about these three victims? They're not police officers, but they're still equal to police officers, surely. Well, this is what we're wanting to do. So uh, we've had a couple of cases in Victoria where the government has changed the law to keep offenders in jail. So we've had Julian Knight, so Hoddle Street, uh, the Hoddle Street yeah. killer. And Julian Knight killed seven and got a 27-year minimum, which is beyond wow. belief. But he, I think, did a law degree while he was in prison and he would have all of these ridiculous, um, you know, charges and he'd be helping people in prison and he'd be complaining about things. And in the end, the law that kept him in prison was they declared him a vexatious litigant. In other words, you're a pain in the butt and you're not using the law as a weapon so you can no longer access the law. So he can't apply for parole. And so, okay, there's Tick, Julian Knight's out. And I've heard from prison guards that he is a person that we're very happy that he would stay in jail for. And then we had Craig Minogue, who was one of the Russell Street bombers. And he too got um, a similar sentence to Denya and I think a 30-year parole period, which is up. And he went to apply for parole And no one wants him to get out, right? He set a bomb in the heart of Melbourne and exploded. He didn't know there could have been school kids lining up where they usually do outside Russell Street. He did not know who he was going to kill. One person was killed. Many people were injured. And they made a law that says you kill a cop, you never get out. He's challenged that law and he didn't win the challenge. And so what we want with Denya is we want, and I'm meeting with uh, the local member for Frankston next week, and what we want is to say to him, what are you going to do to change the law to keep him in? And the obvious answer to me is a serial killer rule. So if you kill three, you're a serial killer, and that's something that Denya was really proud of. I got my three. And so it's like, all right, well, you take your pride and you just keep that and your pride and you in prison forever. And if you're a serial killer, you never get out. And I just think that would simplify it uh, with a rule like that. But we'll certainly be putting pressure and asking the government 
uh, to protect us because no one wants him out. But the fact that he's applying for parole is torture to the families. I can't tell you strongly enough how distressing this is to really vulnerable people. Oh, 100%. And is he now also um, a threat to the LGBTQR community as well? Because he's... Look, I don't think, um, no, no, no. So that's something that we explore a lot in the podcast. Um, But I remember being on Neil Mitchell with with Natalie Russell's mum and dad and someone had rung in to to Neil Mitchell and it went on air and he said, you know, I was in jail with Paul and Neil said, oh, don't you mean Paula? And the guy said, nah, he doesn't do that anymore. So Neil Mitchell and I are looking at each other in the studio going, what? Um, so, you know, I've heard this from a number of sources that that's not something that he's pursuing. Okay. Because, I mean, that was quite a jumping character at the time, I felt. Yeah. So in the podcast, I, I talked to people who had access to him mm. in prison and so they really go into a lot of detail, uh, which I, I won't do spoiler alerts, but they go into a lot of detail about the way that he was in prison. Yeah. And I think the members of the LGBTQI plus community will be shaking their heads in mm. horror. Absolutely. Because so many of them stood up from him, for him. And I know that um, when... People mentioned him and, and, you know, he was talked about in podcasts. I know that there was always um, people were open to backlash when you called him him and you didn't refer to she, you dead named him and her, whatever. And I always, when uh, Paul was identifying as Paula, I always referred to her as yeah. she. And then when I got information from a number of really credible sources, I stopped that because... and But the families don't. The families... And you can't expect them to. Uh, the families, uh, the, a lot of the family members don't even, they won't, they call, uh, they refer to Denya as it. They won't even say his wow. name. Yep. Can't yeah, blame can't him, can blame you? Him. Sorry, mate. Can't blame him. No. Well, and, no. You, you know, you think the families and the impact that he's had on them and the impact on the system and the, the cost, the cost, the lives. I mean, what a mess. What a mess for just what power? Power and con- control and entitlement, mm. and that that ability to walk through the world and be the fear that that quickens people's steps and to be, but also conversely to be the saviour. So I, I I've spoken to a lot of people over the years that talked about how Daniel would walk in to his girlfriend's mm. work. Uh, when he would go to pick her up and he'd say loudly, you know, does anyone want me to walk them to their car because there's a serial killer on the loose? Wow. And it's like, but you're the fear that you're protecting them from. Wow. So so that uh, it's more complex than we can ever understand because offenders like him act outside of our goalposts. Oh, yeah. And and we just don't, I don't know that we're even capable of really understanding, but we can certainly see the damage that they cause and we can certainly respond to that. And that's, you know, I spend a lot of time with um, with the families of the victims and people that were affected by this and my heart goes out 
to them and we're all working together to try and keep him locked up forever. And thank goodness we have you. Yeah, me, me and a, a bunch of other people that are just so invested in this um, and we're really lucky we've got uh, a politician who was, and this is, you know, only happens in weird real life, but he was dating, uh, David was dating Natalie at the mm. time and uh, he's now become a member of parliament. Wow. So he's he's out and proud about saying, I want to do everything that I can yeah. to have this law. So he's been on the news a number of times, David Limbrick, and such a strong and important voice within the government that he you know, I don't know, might be walking past the Attorney-General or someone really important that we may not have access yeah. to and he might say, what are you going to do about Denya because this is coming up. You don't want him out. Wow. So there's a, there's a bunch of us. There's another woman called Karen who was Natalie's best friend, um, Natalie's two sisters. We've got Debbie Frame's son, you know, baby Jake, who was 12 days old um, and when she was taken. And so, you know, he's now nearly you know, approaching 30. And so we've got uh, sort of this core of us who are like, what What can we do? What can we do? Well, good on you. And, you know, if yeah. only more people would try and think that way. With I think everyone wants to do stuff. Yeah. So, you know, there's another a man in Tasmania whose sister was Elizabeth's best friend. He started a... Uh, a change.org petition, I think last I looked at, you know, it had hit 30 and was rising 30,000 signatures and and I think even though the parole board doesn't take that into consideration, it doesn't mean anything, but they can consider everything. So the fact that if we could get that up to maybe 50, that they go, whoa, 50,000 people don't want him out. It's just another, you know, another ingredient in the recipe for not letting him for out. Sure might help. Well, and if yeah. you've ever been a victim of anything, you understand the severity of him getting out. So, you know, ruining He's ruined lives and ru he, ruining he would lives. Do, yeah. Which brings me He would do which it also again. brings me to another book of yours, Salvation, which I read. I mean yeah. Did you like wow. it? <laughs> Triggering for me. But but I made myself read it a long time ago when you first published it. And yeah. you know I mean, to think that these these people are we trust them with children, and yeah. they're doing what they were doing to kids, ruining them, ruining their lives forever. And I understand. I understand I think that it's, it, it's like a it's a haunting train ride for life. Doing that. yeah, but of course, the victim in that the victim survivor. Yeah. Uh, was a man, is a man called Rod Braybon. And Rod was one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. Yeah. And when he first contacted me through, I can't even remember, through a mutual friend, and I had a phone conversation with him and the hook for me to write that book was when he said, I ended up in Pentridge Prison at 16 and it was like a bloody holiday camp compared to the Bayswater Boys' home. Wow. And I had been to Pentridge, mm. get this, on my year 11 um, English excursion yeah. or maybe legal – no, maybe it was legal studies excursion. Mm. We went to Pentridge mm. Prison when it was an active prison and we all saw a play. 
So we, I experienced the clanging cold corridors and sitting in this theatre and someone whispering, the guy that's the lead in the play, he's a murderer, he beheaded someone. Of course, the rumours, I don't, I don't know who beheaded who, but the rumours go around. And then afterwards we were able to sit with, <laughs> look at the back on this in horror, but we, we sat with the prisoners, they're all supervised, of course, and they, maybe they hand-picked. But I remember listening to one guy telling us how to rob banks and you've got to steal three cars and park one around the corner so that the getaway car that they're looking for is like a silver Ford, but then you hop into a blue Holden and <laughs> how to make potato peel into, I don't know, vodka or... Wow. You know, stuff that um, was... It's like, whoa. Yeah. Um, so I, I had that experience of going into Pentridge when it was still an active prison and I just thought a 16-year-old boy thinking that was better than the Bayswater Boys' Home. Wow. What I loved about Rod's story is that even though his abuse was profound and the effect ongoing, mm-hmm. Rod was one of those people that you were talking about before that, you know, he he had siblings that had similar abuses, and I'm not just talking about sexual abuse, but really physically violent. These homes in the 1950s were the kids were beaten and quite possibly murdered. A few of them disappeared after beatings and were never seen again. And I, I wouldn't mind taking a, you know, a, a, a human remains detector dog up into the woods behind the Bayswater Boys' Home because I've got my doubts that children survive that. Oh, yeah. And... Um, um, you know, but j- just Rod, Rod looked at it that he had a childhood without power and spent the rest of his, his life being powerful. And so when it came time to blow the whistle on the Salvation Army, he just went, I've got a voice, I'm using it. And he stood up and he shrugged off any sense of shame or embarrassment or anything and just said, they did this, they beat kids, they raped kids, they beat me, they raped me. And, and I want them to take account for this. And I admired him so much because out of disempowerment, he built power. And I'm not saying that he had a smooth no. ride because he really no. didn't. But his, um, a lot of people in his circles were, were just crushed by what happened. But he seemed to be able to say, I need to use what happened and I need to weaponise what happened against those that Good did it. And it was just striking to yep. watch. But one thing, though, Jules, I, I thought about this before when you were mm. talking, was that Rod, when he was suing the Salvation Army, he needed to get a psychiatric assessment, yep. right? So he had seen uh, a psychiatrist or a psychologist and they'd done a report I came in and worked with him. I went to his house every Saturday. We wrote another chapter of the book and we worked on it. And and so over the course of a year, the book was done. And then he went back for another psych assessment. And then he rang me one day. He was so excited. And he goes, I've got to read you this letter from my psychiatrist. Um, and that she had examined him. And in her letter, she said, the act of writing this book and sitting with an author for a year who believed him and acknowledged his story and allowed him to process it has been really helpful psychiatrically for him. 
and that he was in a much better position. But I could see that anyway. I didn't need um, a psych letter to tell me that he was a different person at the end of that journey than he was at the beginning. Yeah, what a great thing to do with Rod. Yeah, it would have been quite empowering for him to sit there and digress and with someone like yourself who's done this quite often and with the skills that you've got um, would, have, would have left him feeling empowered undoubtedly. Um, I did look, one thing that happens when you do in Australia, I find when you discuss being a victim of a crime, if you choose to have that discussion, um, we often, we definitely believe in the power of now. We definitely believe in the law of attraction. Now, I worked on The Secret <clears throat> with Rhonda Byrne. I understand how constructive that thought process is. But I think when you start victim blaming and say you attracted it or you attract it, you know, I don't think you can really use the law of attraction to a victim. I don't think it's really that healthy, do you? Yeah, I don't think the law of attraction should ever be applied to that. I mean, I think for me, and look, I worked with Wanda on The Secret and, not sorry, not The Secret, The Sensing That's Murder. That's right, yeah. Um, and that was before The Secret and I remember emailing her one day going, oh, what are you working on now or is it a secret? And she goes, well, actually, it's called The Secret. <laughs> so, um, uh, but on, on Sensing Murder and I don't think that we should ever think that we attract bad stuff. Um, Stuff happens to, you know, you could get struck by lightning or a global pandemic. We didn't all attract that. But I think what, how I would look at it is that if you, if you believe as a victim survivor, if you believe, and I've certainly had people say this to me, that their life is defined and ruined forever by what happened, I believe that that's what their life will be, that that it will play out like that. And this is why people like Rod are such amazing role models because he says, yes, it happened, but I've got to make it mean something and I've got to use it for good. And I'll give you an an example. I was going to say one reason why Um, I'm doing these podcasts, Sonny, you know, that's a very good example. So go for your example. Yeah, yeah. So my daughter, um, about maybe 12 years ago, got pregnant and uh, halfway through the pregnancy she had her 20-week scan and the baby's brain hadn't developed because a clot had blocked blood supply to the brain. So my daughter at the age of 23 had to face, you know, the loss of of this uh, very premature baby that couldn't survive and... She, and I remember at the time we took her to our, we used to go to this place to get a facial and she, you know, in between having this diagnosis and then giving birth and the baby would not make it and we would have a baby funeral and it was incredibly distressing and just awful. And I remember booking her in for a facial and the woman who did the facials, we got there and there was a big bunch of flowers for my daughter and she got held my daughter and she goes, oh, my God, this exact same thing happened to me. I never got over it. The baby, you know, my daughter after that was born on the baby's birthday. I can never celebrate my daughter's birthday and, and, and my life has been forever ruined by what happened. And I remember looking at this woman thinking, I hope that doesn't happen to my daughter. I, I don't... I that's that's tragic yeah. but uh, that's that's 
I could think of nothing worse that my daughter is forever bent and bowed down by this. And so my daughter went to the hospital and had the baby and held the baby while it, you know, died. And it was just, you know, you you just, if you can think of anything more awful, I can't. But when we were wheeling her in the wheelchair out of the hospital and we left the baby behind and she said to me, she said, Mum, I want to be a nurse like those nurses that helped me. And my heart sang because what my daughter did, and this is what I've always done, is she said, I want to take this tragic thing that's happened and I want to make it mean something and I want to help other people. And and she enrolled in nursing and now she's a nurse. She doesn't work in maternity because she's got three mm-hmm. little kids now and, you know, needs to um, work regular hours. Yep. But she became a nurse. She enrolled and and everything that she wanted to do with that tragedy, she made it her career to help others in as a healthcare professional. And this is what I'm talking about that that and I don't I'm not blaming, you know, I don't want people to be thinking, well I can't get over yeah. it and she she's being you know mean yeah. about that. I I totally of anyone understand that distress and trauma. But what people like Rod show us and what people like my daughter show us is that there is a way of taking an awful, awful thing and surviving and thriving, not in spite of it, but because of it. Does that make sense? Beautifully said. No, no, beautifully said. I'm not judging anybody who can't do that and my heart goes out to people who can't do that. But I've seen people who can do it and they're happier and more fulfilled and they make that thing mean something. They use it as this thing has happened for me to learn and grow from. And that sounds counterintuitive when you're in the depths of despair. But when you see that in action, and these are the stories that I want to write, I want to write about people that have survived and thrived. No, well, good on you, I swear. I mean, really, you've written 19 books that I know of, not 18, because you and I wrote a book together many years ago. Yeah. And... And I've written some others for other people as well. You lose count after a while, yeah. yeah. I figured you might. And and, and it's, yeah. it's a bit confronting to um, to for me to publish that, as you know, um, and maybe yeah. over time, but it was so good for me. And to go through that with you and thank you for your time and going through that with me, that journey 30 years ago, we did that. But, you yeah. know, it, what an incredible therapy session and that was one way of helping me heal. And it's, it's very difficult for some people to think about the fact that they might have a life yeah. later. But, you know, time... But part of the writing process is reframing, yeah. isn't it? And I remember when Rod came to me, when we were doing one of our writing sessions, and he said, he said to me when he was about 14, he was released from Bayswater Boys' Home and he got a job at a bakery and lived in a boarding house. And he said there was this really nice lady that worked at the bakery with him and he said, I'll, I'll always regret uh, she, we all left our stuff in like a back room and he said one day I pinched 20 bucks out of her wallet no. and he said, I've always felt bad about that because I liked yeah. her. And I looked at him and I said, Rod, 
you were a 14-year-old boy. You had spent a life abandoned by your family, dumped at the Bayswater Boys' Home. You tried to run away. You told the police what was happening there. They drove you straight back. You were beaten to near death. You were raped by the people there. The only things you knew how to do at the forefront of your mind was survival. And everything came second to that. So when you saw 20 bucks, it didn't, that was more important to take that in case you needed it or your little brother needed it than your liking this woman. And he looked at me as if this load came off his mind. And it was like, oh, now I can look back on that, reframing it into that was an act of an abused child desperation, Mm -hmm. not an act of I pinched 20 bucks from someone I liked. Hey, look, I, I've often said to people, it's a, it's a great example that, you know, people say, oh, why didn't you leave a certain relationship that was abusive? And I would say to them, yeah. quite often you have two choices and they're both bad. So you've got to, you've got to yeah. work out which bad one is the safest for other people, yourself. I mean, the, the, the choices are very minimalistic and you're living in a horror movie live, and you, and you yeah. honestly quite often have two bad choices. Do I steal that 20 bucks yeah. or do I go and yeah. sell myself on the street? You know, that poor kid, yeah. kid, kids at that age going through that trauma do do that to earn money because they, they have no other choices. So I understand, I understand, yeah. understand his pain, his guilt, and people like, people yeah. like you, Vicky, is to have that kind of response. That's what we need more from people. Try and be that little bit more compassionate. It's just humanity, oh, isn't it? Yeah. I just think we need more kindness in the world. And I say this as a crime writer, like people are like, you're reading and you're embroiled in this all the time. But really as a crime writer, both in fiction and non-fiction, it's all about hope. And all of my stories have this human spirit and hope and strength and that at the end of it you feel empowered and you feel like you've learnt something about the world and that you feel that, um, you know, out of the ashes of horror can come the phoenix of life. And that's, you know, that's really what I try and do with the work that I yeah, do. Yeah, good on you. You do do that. I can read it, you know, and that, that's why I said to you um, on finding, reading The Unbelieved, I can manage it because of the way you've written it. So as a survivor, there's, I guess, you know, Senior Constable Pollard is kind of like holding your hand as a survivor through that because she's doing the things that you couldn't have done or that you did do and it didn't work out for you. You know, we do do fight like her, Antigone. Yeah. We do. She's tough. I I fought for five years and it it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter how much fight you have, quite often most survivors actually end up letting go and giving in. Yeah. It's very important for people to understand that. It's, you can't yeah. always fight but your the way out. That, the, the ones that can leave, the ones that can see that little path yeah. out, um, you see posts on social media and uh, there's a lot of happy people out there that, that fight their way out and are really happy at the other yeah. end. And even if they're alone and even if they don't have a lot, they really appreciate that. But when Emily Webb, Emily Webb from Australian True Crime, she launched The Unbelieved and she said, one of her questions was, she says, I feel like this book is 
uh, a love letter to victim survivors. Well, and I thought, oh, that's such a beautiful way of putting it. There's no gratuitous violence. There's no, you know, that's it all occurs, yeah. most of it occurs off screen and that you're not being um, pummeled by, you know, that violence porn of, you know, let's eviscerate women in the in the pages. And so this is very, very careful and considered yeah. uh, to to be for people like you that aren't going to be uh, unnecessarily yeah. triggered by what's happening in you the book. You did well. You did really well for us. Thank you. Thank you. I gave it my <laughs> You shot. did really well, honey, I'm telling you now. Um, so, yeah, so I was, I was really proud of you reading that. I was like, oh, this is well, this is well put together. Very well done. But, you know, I know you and to hear you, like I just said that to you earlier as a survivor, it was a really good book to, to read because I felt like there was a fairy godmother or a fairy god police officer. And, yeah, usually you, you don't have somebody like that to guide you through that kind of story. So, yeah, well done. Hats off to you, honey. Um, yeah. I was a huge fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm, Did you watch that? I actually remember you being a huge fan of it. We used to talk about it. Well, that hasn't gone away. But in season, for fans of Buffy, in season seven, there's a, a part of the narrative, the final narrative, yeah. is that Buffy's the one girl in each generation, there's a slayer born. But in the final narrative, Buffy figures out a way and her friends figure out a way to empower all women. Mm. And I really liked that. So Antigone comes into the town and she doesn't say, I am the saviour of everyone. She says, I'm tough and I'm going to give strength to anyone that I can give it to. And so she never misses an opportunity to teach martial arts to the Country Women's Association. And, you know, so she says it's not just about one powerful woman, it's about powerful women emerging and we can all we can all be powerful. And let's let's try and empower each other more and more as we go through this journey of life that we have. Bring it on, so job well done. I want to jump to, you're welcome, I want to jump to the Phillip Island case because I I didn't get to mention to you before. A couple of things jumped out at me. The two Mogadons. Yeah. And and the, the truck that was seen near the Phillip Island Bridge, near the toilet. Yeah. Was that toilet ever checked for evidence? Yeah. That public toilet for clean up for clean up. I'm sure. I'm, yeah, I'm sure they would hmm. have. Um, it's it's a mystery that people that are familiar with it. It was my first ever book, so I was literally in my early twenties when I was working full time as a teacher. My daughter was little, and I just had this burning desire to be a writer and I really didn't know what I was doing but I just think sometimes that's a good thing that you don't know what you're doing because you, <laughs> you can just do it. blindly yeah. figure yeah. it out. You know, I think you don't never realise how hard it is. You don't know what you don't yeah, know, right. right? So I was able to kind of stumble my way through it and and go and interview cops and ring people up and go, can I talk to you about this? And they go, sure. Um, there weren't the... You know, today there's, of course, social media and everybody wants to jump on the story. But back then there Mm. weren't many people doing that. So it was a bit of a novelty. And the Phillip Island book, 
a couple of years ago, everybody wanted to make a podcast out of it because Teacher's Pet had just come mm. out. And that's kind of a missing woman from 30, 40 years ago and 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 there's this feeling that it's solvable. And Phillip Island has the missing woman from 35-something years ago and it, it too felt solvable. And um, so that's where I got into podcasting was uh, people had wanted to do it and approached me and finally I was talking to Casefile and... Um, and the case file host said to me, oh, do it with us. You know, you should do it. Other people shouldn't be doing this. You should yeah. do it because you've been following this thing for oh. uh, th- 30 Eon. years. Yep. And and I, I just went, okay. <laughs> and so I, I then had to go figure out how to make a podcast yeah. and I found out later that the case file host – I, I kind of went and just recorded interviews and put it all together. My niece is uh, Beck Petratus. She is this amazing, um, you know, podcast producer and they have a st- stupid old studios is there uh, where they work and it's amazing. And so I went out there. She helped me put it all together and I just sent the case file host an episode. And he said to me later, he goes, I was waiting for you to ask how to do it and you just sent us this episode that was complete and edited and, and wow. finished. And I'm like... I never even thought to ask them how to do it. You just did it. You know, it was just, I'll figure it out, I'll figure it out. I love saying yes to stuff I don't know how to do um, because I trust myself as a learner and as a, you know, I'll figure it out. That's my life motto, I think. Yeah, you did that with your and, writing. And mm-hmm. then I figured yeah. it out. I never trained. I didn't I didn't know how to write. Yeah. And with the Philip Island book, the publisher that I'd sent it to who said, yeah, I'll publish it, um, he he said, oh, you don't know how to write, you're a teacher, so I'll pair you up with a, a journalist. And so Paul Daly was just amazing. So I'd sort of write a chapter and then he'd come over and show me how to make it sound much more better, as we would say at primary yeah. school. And, um, and I just sat at his elbow and went, whoa, and just was a sponge and learnt about, you know, tautologies and... Yeah, it, just everything. I, I just soaked it all up. And so by the time the next book came about, like a lot of the cops were saying, oh, if this one doesn't work out, come back, we've got heaps of stories. So I just, the minute it was done, I went to those cops and got more stories from them. But um, so the case, the book came out, it went out of print and then that's when Rhonda Byrne, you know, 20-something years later says, I'm making Sensing Murder. So again, it came back into the spotlight and I've been, you know, people just always came to me so it just made sense that I did it and that it was my journey. And as, as I was doing it with my niece Beck at the studio and she's going, there are no other podcasts where someone can say, I've been following this thing for 30 years. <laughs> And I, I thought, yeah, there probably aren't. And, you know, then we just had millions of downloads and it was really um, – it was good to to see that I could transfer those writing skills into podcast writing oh, yeah. and interviewing skills into podcast And narrating. Interviewing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I was really impressed. And with the finished edit, I was going to say to you, who were your producers because that was so beautifully done. <clears throat> Well, the case file team did it. Mm. So I was so lucky to be able to just play to my mm. strengths and my strengths are interviewing people and, you know, talking. I think being a teacher helps a little bit with that uh, that soothing voice. Yeah. And then, you know, I just hand it all mm. over to other people that know stuff that I don't and then they do stuff. Amazing. 
and then it comes out. It's magic. I highly recommend it. If you want to hear a story on a long drive or doing a workout or on a long walk, definitely download. Just go on to vickypetratus.com. There's a whole list of podcasts that you can listen to. Um, I really wanted to just go back to something that we brought up earlier and that's treatment of survivors in fiction and non-fiction. And where can women go and men, what should they do if something happens to them? Because a lot of people shut down. What, 80% of of, um, victims don't report their crimes. I I suggest going to a doctor. That's been a statistic, yeah. Yeah. I say go to the doctor at the very least. But, you know, definitely speak to a police officer. What are your thoughts? Oh, Jules. You've spoken to so many statistically, survivors. Yeah, statistically, though, mm. as we recently saw with um, some really high-profile cases, mm. statistically every man accused has a 94-ish percent chance of being found not guilty before he even walks in the court. 100%. The, the police, the police said to me... And this is on, the problem. There you go. And the, I, I wanted to bring this up. The police said to me, um, sorry, but you're not a 14 to 16-year-old girl. There's no point in having a conversation about it. But the problem is 14 to 16-year-old girls would be so traumatised by this mm. that they may not necessarily ever go to police they would just suffer the damage of it and this is the problem Mm. look i want to say go to the police report it they'll take you seriously and i think they do i I don't think if you went in and said i was just attacked and i'm full of dna specimens and and injuries that make it really clear that i'm the victim but unfortunately a lot of uh, survivors of these kind of assaults, well, the first thing that they need to do is just w- have a, a shower and just wash away any remnant of what's happened. And, of course, no. forensically that's incompatible with... Um... But, look, the problem that we're seeing now, and I think I, I cover this in The Unbelieved, is that, you know, there was one really high-profile case where the guy's found guilty, he appeals, he's then found not guilty... And then the judge in her summing up says, well, we know that the victim didn't consent, but do we know that, did he know that she didn't? And and I, I just hear stuff like that and I go, what hope do women have when we now start to think she didn't consent, but did he know she didn't? And then you think every single guy ever no, Your Honour, when she was screaming and trying to get away or when she froze or when I just met yeah. her and, um, you know, four minutes later had a sexual episode with her in an alleyway. Mm. I didn't know she didn't consent. Yeah. It's like, for God's sake, where's her agency? Yeah. And consent, now they're teaching enthusiastic consent and I just think we need to really emphasize that because if you don't know if she's consenting or not if you don't know whether you're a rapist or not then you really need some help yeah. don't you well i mean so often you know someone could be nervous as well so oh look maybe not he's not right now let's you know and and then they continue so that was a no just to let you know no not right now you know don't yeah. don't try and 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 if you want to calm them down 
a, a normal guy would just say, yeah, no worries, let's go and have a drink with our friends over at the bar. Yeah, I can see <laughs> yeah. that it's not time and I want this to yeah. be, it is as important for me yeah. for it to be as special to you as it is yeah. to me. And I think that's where, that's what's lacking in these kind of assaults yeah. when the male um, perpetrator says, what, me, a rapist, no. Yeah. And just to think, was it enthusiastic participation or did I have to, you know, talk that person into it or did I have to cajole, you know, if you had to do that? Mm. No. Just stop it. Don't do it. Absolutely. And, but, but we're, talking, I mean, look, we're talking about I, men that, that understand what they're doing already, really, most of them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because all... Um, people, women in particular, are more in danger of the person that they eat breakfast with than they ever are from a stranger. Mm -hmm. And so these aren't strangers doing it to people. These are, might be people that you know, particularly children. That's mm -hmm. why they stopped doing stranger danger because the children that were victims of uh, strangers were, again, in the single digits and most people uh, were known to offenders and um, uh, known to the victims. Oh, so... This is where we, we just need to have this understanding and this knowledge because knowledge is power, yeah. isn't it? I mean, and this topic needs to be spoken about more and more by men and women, um, professionals in that the work closely with victims and perpetrators. Just need to talk about it more and more or write about it more and more, give talks at school. I'm sure they do a lot of those things. I'm not quite okay with that, that area so much, but... I think the most important thing is to either report it to the police if you've just been sexually assaulted in particular, don't shower and go to a police officer, go to a doctor and definitely ring, if you're struggling, 1-800-RESPECT because they have an entire program yeah. ready for you and, you know, that, yeah. that changed my life, 1-800-RESPECT. And I think, Jules, a lot of the time that a woman uh, or a man doesn't go straight to the police yeah. is that an offender has made them feel shame, fear, it's your fault, you did this. And I think we have to we have to get better at understanding, you know what, I didn't consent, I didn't do it, you're the offender. Yeah. And we have to draw that line in the sand yeah. and say, did I want this to happen? Of course I didn't want it to happen. Did I... Did I like it? No, I didn't like it. I didn't want it to happen. And and having that language of um, of of gaslighting. I'm reading this really good book at the moment, Elisa Jewell, The Family Upstairs. And a woman ends up being married really quickly to this charming man who, of course, is, a, is an offender and a perpetrator and a, a whatever, narcissist, and a gaslighter. And he, he starts to gaslight her straight away. And as a reader, I'm thinking... You know, she's like, I didn't do anything and tries to argue. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, he's such a gaslighter. I hope she finds out really quickly. And within pages she's saying, he's gaslighting me. And I'm thinking, yes. yes. So that she's not just seeing the behaviour and then being befuddled by it. She's naming it and calling it out. And I'm like, yes, this is the kind of the fiction that I want to that I want to read because she identifies it. Uh, after the first assault, she leaves him and never goes back and there could be a gun involved. I'm not up to that bit yet. Mm -hmm. There's a gun in a drawer. So I'm just hoping that she shoots him. But um, you, you know, the, the, this language, 
Yeah, and then writers like Colleen Hoover, who wrote the most amazing book that my 16-year-old niece recommended called This Ends With Us, and again is covering this, you know, lovely romance and all of a sudden, bang, there's domestic violence. And uh, the girl has to has to figure out how to extract herself from it because she knows this isn't a one-off, this is going to get worse, this is going to escalate. Yeah. I cannot ever, ever, ever be in a relationship with this man because he's shown me who he is and I've listened. And I'm just reading this going, if this is what my 16-year-old, if my teenage niece and her friends are reading this, this is brilliant yeah. because it's giving young girls language and experience of you don't stay with someone who's violent. And you don't. And when I said it gives them power, I meant not power as power over anything, but just empowerment within yourself. It gives you that power, that understanding of how you should or shouldn't be treated. Yeah, and reading sends us into another world and we get to experience stuff that we might necessarily never have experienced, but we'll see the signs and we'll start looking for those signs in our friends and then it just empowers the world, doesn't it, reading? definitely, for sure. I think we've covered so much and we could... I I think think we we could do a four-hour podcast on these topics, to be quite honest, but, Vicky, I'm going to get you back, if you don't mind. We'll review what we've spoken about today and maybe have another podcast at some other stage, especially um, perhaps after your um, Bordenia podcast. We can have another catch-up after that. Yeah, so we're hoping for the parole application is um, in April as far as we can tell and so we want to release just, you know, um, either late February, early March just so that we can hit the world Mm. And when the parole bid comes up, we just want everyone to go, no. Definitely. Yep, we need to all get on board and have a think about that. And not not just yeah. for Paul Denya, but many perpetrators that are very skilled at getting out of their sentence. Really yeah. Crazy. Anyway, we'll be tuning in, Vic, don't you worry. And if you want an update on that, you can just check um, vickypetraders.com Indeed. Or my Facebook author page, which is Vicky Petraitis author page, and all of my updates are on that too. Beautiful. Bring it on. Well, I look forward to speaking to you more. And a message to all the victims out there, my, our, my heart is with you, and I hope you all have a friend like I do, like Vicky Petraitis, because I tell you what, they really do help having that compassion, that understanding and uh, write to us if you need to talk about it, if you're confused about anything. Thanks for joining us, Vicky, and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks for having me, Jules. Thanks for joining us for that podcast, everybody, with Vicky Petratus. Now, honestly, if our conversation has upset you or brought something up for you that you haven't yet addressed, please call 1800RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-737. 732 1800 737 732 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Lifeline on 13 11 14.